been a wonderful day for me to have been able to be a part of your uh, worship services here, and especially on this occasion where uh, you commend a group of graduates from the Bible training program here and send them out into the world, hopefully to have a positive influence on those uh, within their sphere of influence uh, to the glory and honor of God and uh, to good reflection on the work that you are doing here in this place. Having the opportunity to present three lessons today, I looked for a theme that uh, would allow me to center all of those lessons uh, around a central idea or thought. And if you were able to be with us this morning, you know that we used three principles from Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, where after returning to the land of promise from Babylonian captivity, Ezra, in leading one group of the returnees, uh, was instrumental in restoring worship to God. And he was a fit person for that, for the principles that are outlined in that verse. The Bible says that Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Three very important components of our preparation and work in preaching the gospel even today. It begins with preparing our heart. It moves from there to a desire to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. And then to teach in our Israel statutes and judgments that would lead people to God. As I think about the situation that Ezra faced, it seems overwhelming uh, to be working with a group of people who have a history, generationally, a history of ignoring God's will for hundreds of years. And then a people taken into captivity because they weren't listening to God. And then to come back to that land having been released, to find a group of people seemingly ready to receive God's word. We noticed that in the Bible class in Nehemiah chapter 8. But it seems like very overwhelming circumstances to know what to do at that particular time and at that particular moment in teaching people to love God to respect, honor, and worship him. You know, it's much like today. Doesn't it seem overwhelming to look at the circumstances that are taking place in our society today? Don't you at times find yourself at a loss for what to say or how to help? the seeming dire and desperate circumstances with which we are dealing. I mean, our society is in a mess right now. There's unrest. There's lawlessness. There's prejudice. There's misdirected blame for a multitude of things. There are, of, of course, corrupt leaders 
there's a general desire for something better. But there's an uncertain hopelessness in the hearts of many. As desperate and as unique as it might seem to us, I would suggest to us that times really don't change much. The Bible reminds us that there's nothing new under the sun. And from time to time, I suppose if we could step back from our immediate context far enough and look at a broader swath of history, we could see cycles of behavior and circumstances in this world. It really doesn't change that much. Today seems to be much like the environment into which Jesus walked into when he graced this earth with his physical presence. It seems to have been very times then similar to the times today. And in particular, on the occasion when Jesus preached what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, I suggest to us tonight that the circumstances were not much different than they are now. As we consider the last aspect of these principles from Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, the the teach it aspect, I'm encouraging us, hopefully, to think about being opportunistic teachers, to recognize the wonderful place that we are in as children of God with what we have at our disposal, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach it. Because really, that is the only thing that's going to help the society and the world in which we live. I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 5 tonight. Our lesson will be drawn from what is said in verses 1 and 2 primarily. And I want to do this by breaking this study into three parts. In the first place, in thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to consider their chronology, what, what the time frame looks like, the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and the general setting of the sermon as Jesus preaches it. Then in the second place, we'll move on to what I have termed revolutionary teaching in the world then and now. And then thirdly, I want to look at some common challenges that hinder us from doing what I believe we all know we need to be doing, and that is teaching. Let's back up to the first point, the chronology, the context, and the general setting of the sermon. Where are we at in the Bible timeline when we come to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, in Matthew chapter 3, you have Jesus coming to John the baptizer to be baptized by him. That takes place. In chapter 4, you see Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, he did that successfully, by the way. And the devil left him for a more opportune time, the Bible says. But in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, the Bible says, From that time Jesus began to preach 
and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so his earthly ministry begins. He begins selecting his disciples, the apostles, and the work takes foot from there. The immediate setting of the Sermon on the Mount in the context can be drawn if we back up into Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. And I would like to read and encourage you to follow along with me as I read verse 23 on into chapter 5 and verse 2. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon possessed, epileptics and paralytics and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and beyond the Jordan and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Here we have. Jesus being followed by multitudes of people. He looks and he sees the multitudes. Seeing, no doubt, their condition. Seeing, no doubt, the problems and the struggles that they were facing. Seeing, no doubt, anger and frustration. And so he goes up to a mountain, he sits down, as would be customary for one who was teaching with authority, his disciples came to him. And while no doubt there were other people in that area among the multitudes that would have heard the things that he was saying, he taught them. You know, I think about or try to consider the climate of that day, maybe even the political climate. I think about the different groups that were prominent, the different views of life and the different ideas and thoughts about how society and life ought to work and unfold. You know, there are different schools of thoughts and ideas today in our society and culture about what would be the less, the best pattern for a happy and joyous life. Same then, we know of at least four groups that had some kind of political influence in this period of time. We know about the Pharisees. They were the people who claimed to put great emphasis on the law of God. In fact, when you see the Pharisees mentioned, they're often mentioned in connection with the scribes, the doctors or teachers of the law. 
The problem is they emphasize so much their tradition, their idea about how things ought to be, even to the point that it supplanted the word of God. That's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 and verse 9, that they reject the word of God in order to keep their traditions. And so you have the Pharisees, which weren't much help. In fact, you remember Jesus said, everything they say to you, listen and do, but don't follow their example because they say and do not. They're hypocrites. We've got our fair share of hypocrites trying to tell us what the best path and way of life is today. Then there were the Sadducees. Some label them as the liberal mindset of the day. They were philosophical. They were the ones who didn't believe in spirits and angels. And so they were at throats with the Pharisees. In fact, if you wanted to start an argument with the Pharisee and the Sadducee, it seemed you could just mention the idea of spirits or angels and then just step back. And so they were at odds. Then there's the Essenes, the group that we understand to be the ascetics. These are the folks that believe the best path was just to separate from society. Have you ever felt like that? The best thing we could do is just step away from the world. That would be okay, I suppose, except for what Jesus prayed in John 17, that we not be taken out of the world because it would be by our influence in the world that people would turn their hearts toward God. So that's not the right approach. It's not the right approach to separate ourselves from society. And then you have the zealots, the fanatical ones, the activist. Maybe this is the group that wants to topple everything, even the government. All of these influences were alive and well and prevalent in the society and the world that Jesus came into. And when Jesus saw the multitudes, seeing men's hearts as he could, he would see all of these different ideas about how to solve the woes of the world. A world divided a world full of animosity, a world with racial conflict. Remember his encounter with the woman at the well of Samaria? In effect, she asked him, why why are you talking to me? The Jews don't have any dealings with the Samaritans. There was racial conflict. And there was a desire for a revolution. Remember the question asked of Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Things don't change much. 
When people in the world try to live life based upon the ideas, the thoughts, and the philosophies of men, it's a mess. Enter the teaching of Jesus. It seems important to point out before we move on to the next point that he called his disciples. His disciples come to him to receive this instruction. Those who will listen to the teaching of Jesus and be discipled by him are in the best place to affect the situation that Jesus was looking at. He saw the multitudes, but he taught his disciples. Number two, the revolutionary teaching in the world then and the world now. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is to New Testament teaching what the Decalogue or the law of, uh, or the Ten Commandments was to the law of Moses. It's not the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments rather were not the sum total of the law of Moses, but they were a pretty good cross section of it. The Sermon on the Mount is not the sum total of New Testament teaching, but it's a pretty good cross section of it. It's a pretty good representation of what life in the kingdom of God would look like, or at least what it's supposed to look like. And I can think of 10 principles, at least 10, in all that's said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's chapters, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, there are at least 10 principles that are brought out in that sermon message that permeate New Testament teaching. And, quite frankly, would be revolutionary teaching in the society in which you and I live today. Think about these with me for just a moment. Happiness, the Beatitudes. Blessed or happy is the man. Do we need happiness today? We do. We are, by and large, an unhappy society. What do you do? Well, when Jesus looked at the multitude and saw all of the problems, he sat down with his disciples, he taught them. And these are the things that he offered. True happiness. He spoke about influence, salt, and light. Influence. You know, it breaks my heart to see some of the people in our society and our culture today who have a platform on which they could speak volumes that would soothe and heal our society. 
There are politicians who have a platform, but rarely do they use it for the purposes under our consideration tonight. There are even religious leaders who have a platform, but they don't use it very well to exert influence, salt and light. He talked about citizenship, in particular about the law in the kingdom and following the law, obeying law. Something else we need today. He talked about authenticity. There's nothing that will turn a person's heart off more quickly than hypocrisy. And especially hypocrisy among religious people. So Jesus talked about authenticity. He talked about fidelity, faithfulness. And in particular, in the Sermon on the Mount, he highlighted marriage. Giving honor to that institution ordained by God that is so important to the fabric and the well-being of our society. He talked about goodwill. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He talked about holiness, emphasized the importance of prayer, fasting. And while we don't typically advocate fasting as a religious right today, there's some benefit of stepping away from situations and circumstances and having a good, sober look at them. He talked about materialism and an overindulgence in the things of the world. He talked about self-control, anger, murder, treatment of our enemies. He talked about peace. Judging. Taking revenge. He talked about longevity. The need to have some stick to He warned that the way the path to righteousness is a narrow way. And it can be difficult. He talked about building a sure foundation and digging deep and building upon the rock. All of these indicative of being able to stick to it. I think... The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is even more revolutionary than we as Christians are apt to admit. We have in the Word of God 
the only solution to the problems of the world. You know, there are a lot of things that I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be president of the United States. To have a platform like that and at the same time to have the responsibility to lead a nation. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to be a politician. To have the power and the ability to make laws that affect society. I don't know a lot of things. But I do know that the only thing that will improve the woes of our world and that will turn people's hearts toward God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. And that is really an icon form in the Sermon on the Mount. My goal and my aim today and the opportunity and the privilege that I've had to speak to this congregation and to some degree in particular to those who are students in the school here and who are going out to be teachers my goal and my aim is, has been to encourage you to follow the model of Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. Make sure your heart is right. Seek the law of the Lord and do it. And tonight, teach in our Israel statutes and judgments. In the last place tonight, I want to think about and consider some common challenges that hinder us. I am stepping on my toes when I say these things because I know I can do better at this. But I hope you'll listen honestly and think about your own life and where you are as a Christian and how these might relate to you and how they might provoke you to a better place. Number one, you and I need to be what I would like to call discipled listeners rather than casual listeners. There were some casual listeners there when Jesus preached to his disciples. There were multitudes following him. Surely we can't expect that when he sat down to teach, they just kept going. They were following him. And so there were people there who, there would be any, any degree of listeners. You and I can't afford to be the degrees of listeners. We need to be discipled listeners. Be doers of the word. And not hearers only, James 1.22. And so think about what kind of listener you are when you read and study God's word. Number two, 
at some point, the church has to accept the possibility that Christianity is the true counterculture for the problems of our world. It is. People talk about we need a counterculture. We're the counterculture movement. We're trying to bring something better. There is nothing better than this. John chapter 7 and verse 46, some officers returned to the chief priest who were wanting Jesus arrested. And they didn't have Jesus in tow when they returned. He wasn't their prisoner. What's your excuse? Why didn't you take him? And the simple answer was, No man ever spoke like this man. What he taught and what he continues to teach via us today is a revolutionary solution for a broken world. You and I have to believe that. Number three... When Christians live it, it makes godliness attractive. When we live it, brothers and sisters, the world takes notice. We have to live it. And I expect that for many of us, the problem can boil down to the fact that we are often intimidated because I, perhaps you, are ashamed of shabby performance in these areas. We have the only solution. Can you imagine in this crazy time that we are living in, if there were a doctor that could get us out of these masks and get us closer to one another than six feet and get our services back to our ordinary way of doing things, And that doctor just sat on that knowledge and information and didn't share it. Wouldn't that be crazy? But it's crazy for me as a Christian to sit on it. We live in a world that tries to intimidate us. To belittle what we know and what we try to live. But don't be intimidated. We have the teachings of the greatest teacher ever known. And they have the capacity to change the world. In all of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount is said to be the best known, the least understood, and the least obeyed. 
I have a mind if Jesus were to return, this is not going to happen because when he returns, obviously, that's the final judgment. But if he were to grace us with his presence today and he walked our streets and great multitudes followed him and he sat down and we as the church drew near to him and he taught us having looked at and considered everything that's broken and everything that's wrong in our world, he would tell us the exact same things that he told his disciples then. The same solution for the world then is the same solution today. And this passage just reminds me, and hopefully you, of just how fitting God's word is. Can I challenge us tonight? First, to prepare our hearts. To seek the law of the Lord and to do it. And to teach in our Israel of our day the statutes and the judgments of our God. If there were ever a time when the gospel of Jesus Christ was needed to bring happiness, to allow us to exert our influence, to show proper citizenship in a kingdom, to be authentic, to demonstrate fidelity, to demonstrate goodwill, to show holiness, to bring about peace, and to dig our heels in for the long haul. Now is that time. I hope that those of you who are graduating will do just that, will go out in whatever role you fill and whatever congregation you work with, that you will recognize and appreciate the value of what you have learned in these two years, and you will teach it. May all of us be encouraged and challenged tonight to recognize the value of what we have at our disposal and do what we can to influence our world and save some. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you need to start there. You need to examine your heart Realize what God has done to make a way for for you. Resolve that you're going to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. And let that begin tonight with obedience to the gospel. Through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism in water for the remission of your sins. Become a child of God. A citizen in the kingdom of God. A Christian tonight. For those of us who are Christians, again... Be encouraged, be emboldened to be a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're subject to the invitation tonight in any way, will you come as we stand and sing?